On my first Sunday as the senior minister of this congregation, January of 2005, before worship I undertook a small pilgrimage, this of course over at the new Old South Church. I climbed a flight of stairs behind the senior minister's study to the fourth floor to visit there my predecessors in the portrait room. There in gilded frames they hang, most of them anyway clad in old-fashioned black suits or preaching robes. Their necks are variously festooned with white stocks, preaching tabs, clergy collars, and stoles. One sports a periwig. Neckwear and whiskers proclaim the parade of centuries and eras represented. Gazing up at them, I introduced myself. Hello, gentlemen. I'm the new minister, number 20 here. I look forward to getting to know you. I am determined to understand as best I can what you faced, how you led, the troubles you encountered, the times in which you ministered. I am humbled to be grasping the wheel from your hands to take my turn. Now, I suspect they were a little surprised when they first laid eyes on me. After all, I'm the first female senior minister since 1669. But... <laughs> But by the standards of their day, these were forward-looking men, almost all of them, so I like to think that they soon came round to welcome me, welcoming me into their company. So today, nearly 17 years later, my own portrait hangs among them. It's no longer the boys' room up there on the fourth floor. A few years back, I moved in with the guys, my predecessors, my posse. As only the 20th senior minister of Old South Church since 1669, I am with my 19 predecessors, a member of an exceedingly small, invitation-only club. Just 20 of us over more than 350 years have captained this singular ancient vessel, have steered this venerable ship of faith. Nine of them did so before there was a United States of America. As I recently announced my retirement, effective the end of May, I hope you will indulge me this morning on this my last meeting house Sunday as senior minister as I reflect on my predecessors, my posse. One battled the hysteria of the witch trials and under cover of dark helped another member of this church accused of witchcraft escape from jail, surely risking his own life while likely saving another's. Another, a physician minister, wrote the first medical treatise on this soil, offering free medical advice when a fearsome epidemic of smallpox insinuated itself into this small port town. Two unlocked the meeting house doors to welcome in Samuel Adams and the unruly crowds that spilled out into the lanes and wharves erupting into the Boston Tea Party. Another, a radical abolitionist, asked leave of this congregation to serve as chaplain in the U Union Army. And his chaplain's tent was a soldier's refuge from the hellish misery of the battlefield. Another served as an army chaplain in World War I. Another co-founded the YMCA in America. And another, when he wasn't preaching against McCarthyism, 
took heat for welcoming a rock and roll band into the sanctuary and a thousand youth from throughout New England who commenced to dancing in the aisles to rock and roll music. Two were instrumental in the shaping and founding of the United Church of Christ, our denomination. And my immediate predecessor, Jim isn't here today. Jim, this is for you, the only other extant senior minister of Old South Church. My immediate predecessor folded his six foot, eight inch tall frame into the seat of a yellow school bus to accompany black children as they were bused into white neighborhoods and white schools, many neighborhoods and schools who did not want them there. Of my 19 predecessors, the majority are decorated with multiple degrees, both earned and honorary. And most of them put their hand to mentoring and guiding the next generation of ministers. Four were immigrants, numbers 1, 10, 16, and 18, while just two were Boston-born, numbers 3 and 4. One presided over this congregation for 56 years, while another lasted less than three weeks on the job. <laughs> the three weeks, due to illness, though God blessed this church, they kept him on in title and paid him for two years. Among them, they baptized Benjamin Franklin and Phyllis Wheatley and more persons of African descent than any other early Boston church. Keeping it all in the family, number eight married the widow of number six, while number 16 married the daughter of number 15. <laughs> the bones of as many as six of our senior ministers with their families lie together to this day in the Old South tomb, tomb number 160 in the Granary Burial Ground. Number seven, while on his way to Boston to take charge here as senior minister, suffered shipwreck. He was cast into the Atlantic Ocean. He lost all his clothes, all his books, all his sermon manuscripts, and this calamity greatly depressed him, affecting his health for, for thereafter, both mental and physical. He served but three years. Number nine exhibited behavior so offensive to the patriot cause that one Sunday, many worshipers took their hats and walked out, while others leaked to the media their great dissatisfaction with this man, which that dissatisfaction appeared in print in the Boston Gazette. He didn't last very long on the job either. Regrettably, number 10 was possessed of an unmusical preaching voice and described as not remarkable as a speaker. <laughs> a portrait of number 11, a minister philanthropist, that's not a usual category, hangs in the dining hall of Yale's Brantford College. Number 12 had to make three concessions before Old South Church would, ex would accept him. First, he had to agree to the church's brand new embrace of a new instrument, a pipe organ, which had been ordered from London but not yet installed. Second, he had to agree to the wearing of a clerical robe with the ladies of the church kindly presented to him. And third, he was to renounce his practice of extemporaneous preaching and confine himself to a manuscript. It was later said that the use of a manuscript had a deleterious impact on his preaching. Number 14 experienced what some of you fear at the holiday dinner table, political divisions among his family members. You think you have it tough. Two of his sons served in the Union Army while his daughter married a Confederate general. 
And not for nothing, just saying, but at his retirement, he was named Pastor Emeritus and voted a salary for the rest of his life. <laughs> Number 16 was a famous liberal pulpiteer who every Friday went bowling with one of the church's lay leaders. George Gordon and Samuel Johnson had a sweet, affectionate, and respectful regard for each other. We now know that four of our early senior ministers were enslavers. They somehow managed, I don't know how, to contort the gospel to justify that terrible evil. In addition, too many of the earliest ministers condoned or did not protest broken treaties, removal, massacre, and the evisceration of the culture and languages of the native peoples on this soil. Over the course of three and a half centuries, my predecessors, your senior ministers, preached, lectured, authored books, founded enduring institutions, and provided theological framework through the making of a new nation, through bloody wars, economic crises, and struggles for civil and human rights. They did so while suffering their own share of personal heartache and travail. My earliest predecessors were rock stars, the Bob Dylans of their day, they drew crowds. Their words gave voice and form, meaning and interpretation to the times in which they lived. Their sermons were published, their words carefully parsed. Like today's free agents in professional sport, the best ministers were fought over by the best churches. It was the ministers who licensed the first printing presses on the soil and then commenced to churning out their own works. Sermons, lectures, tracts, pamphlets, hymns, broadsides, newspapers, and books. They pronounced on every subject imaginable, from home remedies to the efficacy of lightning rods, from slavery to women's rights, from vaccines to high philosophy. Between the printing press and their own pulpits, they had a near monopoly on communications. In the end, ministers are in the communications business. We are interpreters and pronouncers, persuaders and rhetoricians, debaters and lecturers, preachers and pundits, writers and bloggers. Ours is not to merely observe, but to plunge in full tilt and full-throated, taking sides on behalf of the gospel we proclaim, the people we pastor, the God we represent, and those for whom God exhibits a particular concern the widow and orphan, the prisoner and the alien, the oppressed and the destitute, or in Jesus' words, the least, the lost, and the last. Nevertheless, we are all of us frail and faulty, too often captive to our times, too often and too easily persuaded by what is current or safe or status quo, persuaded by what might keep the peace of the church even when such peace contradicts the gospel of Jesus. My 19 predecessors, year after year after year, generation after generation after generation, accompanied an American odyssey. From English separatist to colonialist, from royalist to art, art, ardent patriot, from plain song through a colorful variety of musical genres, from frontier town to a U.S. city effervescent with education and innovation, from Christendom to an explosion of disparate and vibrant religiosities,
from parchment to digital, from white and male to multicultural, multi multiracial, and gender fluid, from enslavers and enslaved and prosecutors of genocide to a national season of racial reckoning that names, confesses, and struggles to atone for the original sin of this nation. And so for better and for worse, the lives, thoughts, and pronouncements of the 20 senior ministers of this church across more than three and a half centuries tell a Boston story, a Christian story, and an American story. It is my great privilege to have held the wheel these past 16 plus years, to be one among just 20, eager to welcome number 21. My heart is full, my gratitude is immense. Thank you. <laughs>